All right. Are you ready to get quiet? <laughs> quiet, quiet, quiet. Introversion. We are so good at this. <laughs> you just ain't kidding. Mm, yes. You bet. Extreme introversion. <laughs> I'm just picturing lots of exclamation points. <laughs> and capital letters. Do you think you can keep it down? <laughs> People are tiring. <laughs> Need to find some explosion sound effects. I think we just did. Mm, some introverted explosion sound effects. Oh, my gosh. I also love that I can hear sirens right now. Oh, can you hear that? That's great. Did you plant those? No, I did not. I did not. I did not. Um, nice. All right. Yeah, extreme introversion is really all I got tonight. <laughs> you are listening to Priority, a podcast about choices, limitations, and getting stuff done. Priority is hosted by Katie Leibman and her brother, Max Leibman. That's me. Today's episode is entitled, Ask Your Doctor About Ambivert. For complete show notes, including links to anything we discuss on the podcast today, visit us online at priority.fm slash 30. Uh, welcome, dear listeners. This is our second installment of the conversation about Susan Cain's Quiet, um, a work of nonfiction that covers a lot about the biology and psychology and sociology related to the introversion-extroversion spectrum. But specifically, um, a lot of what Kane is arguing is that introversion is much underappreciated and misunderstood, and so she's trying to shed some light on specifically introversion from a variety of angles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So last week we were talking about the informal quiz that Kane provides early in the in the text to sort of get our brains around the topic of introversion and extroversion um, in a really nitty gritty everyday sort of way. Um, so this week I think we'll broaden out a little bit, like you mentioned, and talk about some of the particular takeaways we found, some interesting highlights. Um, and as you say, talk about the book as a book. Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm just looking back over last week. Um, so one of the things I had been thinking about was that, so Kane, one of her really personal tie-ins with this topic, she talks a lot about how, a lot of folks who are introverted have experiences growing up where they were either passed around as, um, you know, oh, oh, so-and-so is just so shy. Why can't they be more like blank, you know, insert extroverted kid here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> title. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, they, be, they were painfully aware of their introversion from a young age um, and just kept racking up experiences that sort of highlighted that, um, that quality as a weakness um, or a shortcoming. Um, I, I didn't have that experience in particular, but I had always heard people talk about me and I thought of myself very much as an extrovert. Um, and I don't know how much of this has shifted over time, but one thing I was talking about last time was that, um, you know, according to this informal, although, you know, sort of broad strokes, I would say accurate little quiz, um, 
I score as an ambivert. I am somewhere in the middle of the spectrum, um, probably possessing just about equal qualities of both sides, maybe a little more extroverted than introverted. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really identified with the chapter or chapters about sensitivity. So that was something um, I thought maybe we could come back to a little bit. Sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. That is actually, um, I mean, a, a big part of this book for me. What makes this book for me in a lot of ways is uh, the, the sort of middle section. Um, it, part one of the book, and just, just really briefly to sketch out, you know, for the listener, because I might refer to the different parts as, as such later in the podcast, mm-hmm. so just so they know what I'm talking about. Um, part one of the book is sort of an overview of, of the history of uh, what Susan Cain calls the extrovert ideal, um, this, this idea we have particularly in Western culture in America um, about gregariousness and outgoing personality and, and you know, these, these traditional loud types of leadership and, and um, <laughs> personality being, being somehow better or normal. Um, she sort of chronicles the history of where those ideas came from um, and their ascendancy over the last century or so in America in particular. Um, part two of the book is about physiology and psychology and um, the relationship between introversion and neurological sensitivity, um, reactivity to stimuli in babies, things like that. Um, and, and for me is really the meat of the book. Um, this is, this is, you know, like I said a moment ago, that's where the, what really makes the book for me is that passage. And we'll, I think have a Mm -hmm. lot to say about it. Um, and then part three and part four really just kind of all blur together to, for me. And it's it's like, you know, something, something, here's some stuff to do at work, something, something, kids in schools, something, something, conclusion. Mm Mm-hmm. So right, something something. And then, then a lovely story at the very end about her grandfather, who was a rabbi. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So <laughs> the end. <laughs> da, 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 yeah, da, da. and I mean, there's some of the material. If I, if memory serves, some of the material that that got the most press about things like how offices and schools are organized um, around mm-hmm. extroversion occurs in the latter part of the book, but. Um, <laughs> I, I said last time, this is one of my favorite nonfiction books of the last several years. I would say that chapters one through seven, without a doubt, are my favorite nonfiction book of the last five years. Um, <laughs> the book as a mm-hmm. whole might have some stiffer competition here and there. It's probably still my favorite, but it's a closer race. Mm-hmm. Um, if I count all of it. Yeah. And I'm looking back through that part four, the, the subheading for that section is how to love, how to work. Um, and really all three of those chapters, I would argue, are implied by all the previous mm-hmm. chapters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you could generate the types of things she's talking about there on your own. Right. Or, you know, and yeah. for that matter, I think, I think maybe a little bit less of the same material sprinkled throughout the other chapters might have been. Uh-huh. You know, I'm thinking of um, a model that, uh, if if memory serves, and I haven't read either of these books in a couple of years, so I, I might be misremembering how they're structured. Um, but uh, there's a couple of books by psychologists that were sort of published out in the popular press in the last few years, one called The Procrastination Equation and another called Willpower. Um, I've talked about willpower in particular before on the podcast. And both of them take kind of a similar approach to this book where there's there's some history and there's a lot of psychology and some discussion of research and some storytelling about conversations with various p- persons in, you know, in, in research and consulting and 
Um, mm-hmm. But those two books also have a very self-helpy kind of bent to them. Um, and they, from what I remember at least, take the approach of sprinkling the advice throughout. Like, you don't wait till the very end and then get a bunch of, like, here's how to deal with sure. raising your kids. Here's how to deal with mm-hmm. people who are the opposite of these two temperaments from you. Here's how to mm-hmm. deal with the workplace. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it, it, that stuff occurs throughout, and then there's a little summary at the end that pulls it all together. Um, right. And, I, I mean, I, I feel like, I think Susan Cain's a great storyteller. Um, the first two chapters, or first two sections, rather, first two parts, um, you know, the, the history of the extrovert ideal and, um, and then sort of the, uh, the, the biology of temperament. Um, the storytelling is, and I mean this as a compliment, although in other conversations I might not, the storytelling is, quite, <laughs> is, is positively Gladwellian. Like, she, she <laughs> has a great way of laying these out. Um, you know, historical stories of people like Rosa Parks and, um, uh, oh gosh, what's that guy's name? Dale, Dale Carnegie. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, people that she hasn't met, but whose stories are, are at least fairly widely known, um, as well as conversations, actual meetings she's had, these sort of radio lab like conversations, you know, where, where she kind of lays out the story of her going to the place and meeting the person, and, mm-hmm. you know, doing the Tony Robbins workshop. Yeah, the Tony Robbins workshop, or, you know, when she goes to talk to a pastor at Saddleback Church. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that is, there's a thing, if you've ever listened to radio lab, you know what I'm talking about where, where like, you know, they play the sound of the phone ringing or somebody knocking on the door, you know, when they first go to mm-hmm. meet whoever they're going to interview. Um, and you don't get every minute detail of the interview, but you, you get that like sort of stage setting and, you know, uh, Gladwell's very good at that. And she does it here as well, where, you know, we kind of get the scene as she walks into it and then, mm-hmm. then bits of the conversation and then what the conversation means. You know, it's it's very yeah. readable. She's a good storyteller, but then at the end, she just loses me talking about all these kids and I don't know, I, uh, and the advice, yeah. all the advice, all at once mm-hmm. at the end. Yeah, I haven't done much searching, but it would be interesting to hear her talk about this book and and find out which sections were requested. You know, mm-hmm. were some of that was some of that later material. Um, specifically amped for publication mm, yeah that's a good that's know. a good point that's a good point um you know. you know it might be that she had she had a very clear picture of parts one and two and um went to the publisher with most of that lined up and mm-hmm. you know and they said well we need some practical takeaways <laughs> so people know what people need to know what to do with a book yeah, absolutely absolutely <laughs> and and some of the stuff like i i really feel like um you know all this stuff about classrooms and offices as they're set up just being told is like a, a reporting, you know, the first two, the first two parts again are very reporterly, you know, mm-hmm. just a chapter recounting that and one chapter or one, one short conclusion, you know, epilogue wrapping it all together in a neat package of, of advice, I think would have been better if a mm-hmm. little too pat. And again, I think ideally, like I would have rather seen the advice sort of sprinkled in or even left out, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I feel like this is, the, there's a phrase, I don't remember where I first heard it, but, um, I like it, uh, which is awareness is, is curative. Um, you know, which is not to say that like just knowing about a thing is always going to solve it. Um, if I know mm-hmm. about, um, tuberculosis, that won't prevent me from getting it. Um, but, if I know about it, I can take steps, certainly. Um, sure. And in some cases, there are some problems that, like, just being aware of them. You know, if you're aware you're procrastinating, 
I think your chances are a lot better of the procrastination just stopping when you become, when you catch yourself and say, oh, I'm procrastinating. Mm -hmm. Not always, um, but I think Mm -hmm. some of the time. And I think in the case of this book, just being aware that we act out these patterns that we tend to put forward, you know, extroversion as some kind of ideal or norm or baseline um, is somewhat curative. Just being aware of the fact that not everyone prefers to work in open office even if they are quote unquote creative types or working at quote unquote in communications, um, just being aware of, and, and maybe this is a good lead back into something I know you and I both want to talk about a lot, being aware of the relationship between sen- sensitivity and extroversion, mm-hmm. um, I think is, is, I mean, for me, that was huge. Like more than anything in the book that could be called advice, just the ideas in the chapters about reactivity and sensitivity Mm-hmm. completely change the way I look at myself and introversion and extroversion. And I think almost to a fault, like for the first two years after I read the book, pretty much my only takeaway was the, the, the reactivity and the sensitivity stuff. Wow. That's awesome. No, I'm really glad I, I brought that back up then. Um, yeah, right on. That's really funny that that happened for both of us. Well, and I mean, not that funny. We're related. Mm, so. Yeah, it's probably <laughs> something there. Right. So, I mean, we can explain that a little bit. So in those chapters, um, and I'll flippy flippy, um, in part two, so chapter four, chapter five, um, and then it sort of comes back up in six and seven, but not so much. Um, Different stuff comes up there. Um, Kane's talking about um, various studies that were looking at um, the relationship between physiological sensitivity and introversion later in life. Um, and I'm just looking back through my notes. I know Kagan was the Mm -hmm. main researcher she's talking about. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Okay. So, uh, Jerome Kagan does these studies with infants and he's measuring, uh, I think you mentioned it reactivity. So (laughs) when you, um, play new noises or give new experiences to a toddler like an infant, um, what happens? Do they react wildly by flailing their arms, by screaming and crying and yelling, by jumping? Um, or are they pretty chill? Do they maybe jostle a little bit, but then sort of take the new experience in stride? Um, and it's, it seems counterintuitive at first, but then once you think about it, it'll become clearer Basically, high reactive infants are much more likely to be introverted adults. Mm -hmm. And if you think of it, um, we talked a little bit last time, too, about one of these essential definitions of introversion and extroversion being the difference between what level of stimulation you're most comfortable with and what you seek most. Um, Do you seek a lower sort of threshold for stimulation or a higher one? so an introverted baby or a, I don't know if they'd say pre-introverted baby, <laughs> you know, you can't really choose your social situations as a toddler. Um, you know, so a pre, a pre-introvert, um, with a lower threshold for stimulation would feel much more sensitive to new experiences. So would react in a wilder way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I recall you you mentioned the counterintuitiveness of it, especially the way she lays it out. Um, so as she describes the experiment, 
Um, the the experiences that the infants were exposed to were things like tape-recorded voices, balloons popping, um, colorful mobiles dancing around mm-hmm. in front of them, um, the strong scent of alcohol on cotton swabs uh, being held under their nose, mm-hmm. uh, things a, like that. A woman in a gas mask. <laughs> I think that one's a little bit older, but yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No, that image just stands yeah, out in my mind. Yeah. It's like, so this was, yeah, this was, we should one? mention too, this was a <laughs> longitudinal um, study where mm-hmm. these, these infants were brought back at later, later as a child and then as a teenager and, and sort of, you know, re-examined and given new, strange, frightening stimuli to consider. Um, but when she's talking about the babies, uh, when she describes the results of the first sentences, about 20% cried lustily and pumped their arms and legs. Kagan mm-hmm. called this group high reactive. Uh, and then, then you just she goes on to describe you know another forty percent were quiet and placid, and um, the remaining forty percent somewhere in the middle. And the first time I read this, I mean, I the press I'd seen about this book was mostly about you know, cane railing against open office or school classroom <laughs> settings that you know over overemphasized active learning and and collaborative work and um, underemphasizing sure. solitude and independent study. Um, so this was this section was wholly new to me, and I have to admit, like I I was thinking at this point, oh well, of course that twenty percent are the introvert or the extroverts rather, you know, the ones who are who are mm-hmm. loud and noisy and waving their arms. I mean, the way she says, cried lustily and pumped their arms and legs. Um, right, like look at me, look at right, me. Right, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, but you know, she goes on to say, no, it's the the high reactives are the ones who grow up to be the introverts. Because they're the mm-hmm. ones that their threshold for oh this is too much, <laughs> you know I'm taking in too much information I don't know what to do with it, is lower and that's why they are crying and waving their arms and legs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know count, counterintuitively the babies who are the loudest and reacting are the ones who are going to be the quietest later on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just thought something like yeah and they cry on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> wah, yeah, wah. pretty much. Pretty much. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and I, I gotta... They find other ways to cope. I guess that's the that's a <laughs> yeah better place for my mind yeah, to jump for sure. And I gotta <laughs> I gotta say too that that initially I don't think I saw that like when I first read that I was like oh that's very interesting and that kind of makes sense and you know I love a I love a good scientific gotcha as much as the next as the, much as the next person you know it, it turns out moment. Um, but it wasn't until like later in in the book when we get into the broader issue of sensitivity, um, mm-hmm. and when I say sensitivity, I'm not talking about you know we should be clear. Uh, I think Kane does a pretty good job of this in the book. We're not talking about people who cry easily, you know. Although that can be that can be true. Um, we're not talking about people who like you know are are moved to tears by a sunset. Although again, that can be true. We're just talking about people who who in general. Um, and not necessarily for everything in the universe, but in general for at least some things, pick up on stuff more than other people, um, who have a lower threshold of noticing certain things, who have, um, who feel a little bit too profoundly in some cases, incoming stimuli um, of one mm-hmm. kind or another. And when we got to that chapter, I, I don't think I am, you know, in all respects the most sensitive person in the world. I'm certainly... Um, bad at noticing a great many things but mm-hmm. i i saw a lot of myself in that and in that idea of having a a lower ceiling for what is too much stimulation um mm-hmm. and it wasn't until that point that i really started to reflect back and think of you know examples from childhood where uh, yeah i totally can see myself in those reactive infants 
Right, right. Yeah, no, it clicked for me at other moments too, because um, <laughs> some of those examples aren't the best for translating to everyday adult experiences. Like, oh, well, well, do I jump more when I hear a car door slam than other people? Um, <laughs> you know, that doesn't, mm. that's not a very apt example. It's not a very helpful example. Um, I think it was in chapter five, Beyond Temperament, um, just later after the um, Kagan stuff. And we might have mentioned this last week. Um, <laughs> with school starting this week, everything's a blur. Um, so much to me. <laughs> um, but the study about volume, mm-hmm. I can't remember if we mentioned I it. Think, I think you did briefly. I might have. Yeah. So basically... Um, Some people um, in this one particular study um, were asked to find a particular volume on their own headset as they were working on something that was just right for them. Um, And extroverted people chose a noise level that was higher than introverted people Mm -hmm. did. And in fact, when they were asked to um, work at the other group's preferred noise level, both groups did worse. Right. Um, So really, I mean... And if you think on that, just thinking about the different ways that environment, so whether that's open office or desks and pods in a, in a classroom um, or the noise level and whether or not you're able to control it, there are so many things that could be affecting the way you're, you're working mm-hmm. based on your sensitivity. For sure. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, uh, this is, I, I think, um, I know we talked about it in the, in the last episode <laughs> that we talked about workspaces on. I think we also did talk about it, I at least mentioned it briefly in the the episode about workspaces that went out, though. I mean, this is why, um, for things like, uh, we, we talked about an editorial in that one, an open letter, rather, um, to the employees of Wired about things like action figures on desks. And, you know, I will always say, I work better in an environment that is relatively uncluttered, that is a little bit more um, austere and professional and, and, you know, what I would call tasteful decor, <laughs> But I'm also not going to argue against the people who have action figures on their desks. Um, uh, Our friend Kevin Forch tweeted uh, just today about a new uh, Ant-Man figure that just joined the the various other Marvel superheroes on his desk at work. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. For somebody who is, and this is why I don't don't oppose that kind of stuff, for somebody who is uh, more extroverted and or less sensitive, than I am somebody whose whose you know arousal thresholds are different. The ideal level of stimulation for them to concentrate is going to be different and higher than mine. Mm-hmm. You know, I work better in in austerity. They work better with a lot of color and stimulation and things to pick up and play with uh, sitting around. Sure, and sure. I you know I I still rail against open office. I still say that's a bad idea for everybody, um, <laughs> inclusive, but. I will say there are elements of this kind of stuff that is variable. And certainly in terms of like how open should an office be, you know, how much collaboration do you need? How much interruption do you need to concentrate in the first place? Some people will need more of that in order to feel normal and to function, mm-hmm. you know? And so I say they should leave their doors open and get up and walk around more, but you know, <laughs> right. whatever. <laughs> Some people say, right. oh, that's why we need open office. Um, oh my goodness. Anyhow, yeah, it, there's there's a definitely a difference in need there, um, and I would even say between between you and I, I mean, this is a difference I think I've observed. Um, 
if I can, if I can share an example, uh, <laughs> you can, and if I don't like it, we cut it. Exactly. <laughs> you know the magic of the internet. You know the editor, so uh, I could pull a few. I, just thinking back, so um, this past Christmas um, uh, might be a little bit inside baseball for the listeners, but our parents live most of the year in Florida now, and uh, all of us adult now but adult children um and and our respective families traveled down and and uh mom and dad got a big vacation house so we were all basically living together for a week last december um and something that i observed uh, you know everybody at one time or another participated in the various group activities like watching movies or playing games um but there was also some downtime where people were just basically sitting around chit-chatting doing their own thing you, in comparison to me, were always a lot more ready to reach for a game or an activity <laughs> than to just sit around and shoot the shit for another hour. Um, whereas most of the time, I was just content with whatever was going on already and, and not really that interested in adding on additional activities or stimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as it turns out, <laughs> you got a 10 on the introvert quiz and I got a 17. So there you go. <laughs> Different yeah. different levels no, of stimulation it, to feel normal. Mm-hmm. Even just hanging out, like, you know, as a family, a perfectly normal thing that we grew up doing. Um, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I will um, qualify a little bit because this has been stuck in my brain. I can't remember if I told you that this has been stuck in my brain. Um, but I brought up, and we've, we've talked about this text before mm-hmm. um, several times on, on the show. Um, but... Uh, Shoot, his first name is Barry? Barry Schwartz? Barry Schwartz, yes. Par- Paradox of Choice. Um, yeah, I read that that book again this summer, and now I've got um, the idea of maximizers and satisficers stuck in my head. So every, <laughs> so every time I catch myself maximizing, I'm like, oh, my God, there I go again. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, so when I think of situations like that family time at Christmas, um, it's interesting because – in other situations or if um, our family worked differently, maybe I would be less like that. But because when I'm in that situation, my brain is telling me um, this is a social situation that happens, you know, only a few times a year, we should maximize this. (laughs) We should, the stimulation should be higher. Um, So that's sort of like my brain telling me, this event means this, which means this stimulation. Interesting. I, like resting is for later. <laughs> I wonder. <laughs> That's not for I right wonder, now. I wonder how much of a relationship there is between, um, and and I I don't mean this disparagingly because, and I, I put that caveat on there because you've just read the paradox of choice, so you know he argues for satisficing for going for the good. He does. Option. Oh yes. But I wonder mm-hmm. if there is a relationship between maximizing. And an extroversion and satisficing an introversion, or if it would be the opposite. God, I don't know. I'll have to keep thinking yeah. about that. I, I mean, I can, I can kind of mm-hmm. see it going. I can talk myself into it going either way. Like expect it to go either way because I can <laughs> no, also I see, see like you're, you're an extrovert, so you just want to get on to the next thing, whatever it is. Uh-huh. Oh, but an introvert would want to conserve the energy and use it effectively. Ah, see, there you go. Yeah, see, we can we can go yeah. either way. Yeah, I don't know. It's ambivert. <laughs> ambivalert. Hashtag ambivert life, yo. <laughs> yeah, you should start tweeting with that hashtag. I'll bet it'll be really oh big. Uh, nerd alert. 
<laughs> now, I don't even think you'll get nerd alert. I don't think people will have any idea what's going on. It'll be what alert? Yeah. Um, yeah, but like, there's, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's one example that, um, that occurs to me, you know, a, a difference, yeah. how are different thresholds of, of, you know, what do we need in this situation to feel like we're hanging mm-hmm. out? You know, for me, it's yeah. hanging out. <laughs> hanging out is already exhausting. Why would we do anything? I'm picturing like, <laughs> I'm picturing like us as little robots, like, is this hanging out? Are we doing it? <laughs> that is also my jam. <laughs> Yes. No, yeah, yeah. I, and I hear you, though, um, like what you mentioned earlier about how um, some of these things, the, the awareness is curative. Um, sort of similarly, examples of all these different things that Kane talks about, I would start noticing them when they came up after I had been back through the text. Mm. Um, even things like, and maybe this isn't quite the right way to think of it, but this is how I've been thinking about it on my own. Um, you know, you mentioned, you know, my threshold seems to be higher than yours, um, or my expectations are higher or whatever, um, for certain scenarios. But I think even when I'm, when I'm doing things like working on my own, um, doing something maybe rigorous, but I can have music with work, with lyrics, with words on it, um, on stuff like that. Um, Sometimes loud sort of pumping rock and music is my white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's not the right way to say it, but that's what I've been thinking about more since going back through this book is that there are certain things like that that I think some people more introverted than me would see as a too high level of stimulation. But for me, it's what kind of not neutralizes me. Do you know what I'm saying? I think like with, I, I the, might. with the white noise. I, when you said white noise in particular, it jumped out at me, and I was actually thinking of and and listeners, forgive me. I know I keep doing this with this guy in particular, but at some point, John Roderick has said something like this on his podcast, <laughs> and I'm probably not going to find which one because there's 200 yeah. episodes at this point. But um, <laughs> I mean, he sometimes describes people going for sort of extreme stimuli, uh, <laughs> more or less to drown out the screaming in their head. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> Which is an awful way to put it. But I mean, for me, like I do I do actually like loud music. Um I don't love always going to concerts. I do I have gone to a lot of concerts. I enjoy concerts, but I don't it's not something I do often anymore for a lot of mm-hmm. reasons and part of it is is in fact noise, but like uh, you know, with my like listening to music on my iPhone, I cannot get these earpods loud enough in some cases. Mm. Um and for me it's it, that does kind of go against the 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 sensitivity idea a little bit, but I, I mean, the way that it seems to function for me is like, this is a way of stopping anything else from intruding. You know, I don't want to mm-hmm. hear passersby. I don't want to hear noise outside. I don't want to, you know, listen even to my own thoughts sometimes. I just want to, <laughs> I want to, you know, be here in this moment doing just this one thing plus the music. Yeah. Um, yeah. Know. Mm-hmm. Is that is that close? Is that something like what you're... Yeah, yeah. No, and what I was sort of faltering on there, what I was thinking about was what you just said reminded me of something that might... Uh, well, we'll see if it relates. I think it relates. <laughs> um, there's this guy. I can't remember if I've ever mentioned any of his work. I came across him because of a couple of TED Talks he's done. Um, but this guy named Julian Treasure. Um, fun name. Um 
he it's very mysterious sounding um he works for this big old company that um as it as they say like they design sound experiences mm. for other big companies uh, <laughs> i will tell you right now you've brought him up before on the episode we didn't air <laughs> Oh, perfect. So, this is new. Yeah. <laughs> new and exciting. New for somebody. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, his work sounds very interesting, and I wish I knew more about it from, like, their website and stuff, but it was sort of vague. Um, but I, I would guess, and I could be totally wrong, I would guess that they do things like um, for retail stores or uh, big corporations with, you know, public buildings or whatever, Um they figure out what types of background music and, and noises and sounds should be going on in different spaces. Like, I, I guess. <laughs> That's what it seems to be about. Sure. Um, so, you know, like, oh, these types of spaces should not have music playing. These should have this type. Mm-hmm. And, oh, the acoustics are bad in this room. Mm-hmm. We should work on that. Right. And, and um, when most of the lights are off in this building, there should be random creaky door sounds every 22 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, people in this room should have to cock their heads to the side to be able to hear. Um, it's supposed to um, provoke curiosity, so play everything slightly too quietly. Um, yeah, stuff like that. You know, normal mm-hmm. sound stuff. Sure. Um, anyway, so <laughs> so Julian Treasure's got a couple of TED Talks specifically about listening. Um, one of them, I believe, is called Five Ways to Listen Better. Um, it, along with Susan Cain's quiet are going to be part of the course I'm teaching right now. Very good. <laughs> so coming up in a couple weeks, more about listening. Um, but yeah, he talks at one point and this is sort of stuck with me because I know what he's saying. Um, but something about it troubled me and I think I'm sort of getting to it. Um, in one of his points, he's talking about how, um, sort of now with the way personal technology has evolved, it's so easy to go about in the world in your own little sound bubble. So he's talking about things like how um, when people travel, I'm thinking of commuters in in bigger cities, um, bigger cities than mine that actually have, um, you know, public transportation. Um, (laughs) People can put on headphones and sort of escape the the big sound bubble. You don't have to share a sound bubble with the people on your bus or your train car anymore. You can escape and create your own. Um, and he's sort of talking about how that, along with a lot of other things, um, are symptoms of, of, of a worse listening culture than we once might have had. Um, you know, we're not used to having to listen to what's around us because we have so many mm-hmm. ways to shut it out. Right. Um, and I hear what he's saying, haha. Um, Do you? But the, <laughs> um, but I just, re- I just choose to reject it. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Like I, I buy it. I do. Um, I think about that. Uh, the the institution where I teach, um, it's an extremely small campus uh, compared to other institutions I've been a part of. Um, and I'm also a grad of this school. So I remember when I was on campus, I think it rarely happened that anyone would be walking around campus with headphones in. Um, for one thing, no one really had a walk so long that it would be refreshing or, I don't know, or whatever to be able to listen to something on a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, so campus was not that big. And on the pathway, 
you, I, I don't think there's a real, uh, an active time of day that you could have gotten across campus without running into at least half a dozen people that you knew mm-hmm. that it would be polite to say hello to. Um, you know, so you're already sort of pulled out of your own little mind. Um, and into some sort of that nightmare. Way. Whoa, what are you doing that far? It's a perfectly lovely place, Max. I'm just, I'm just playing the angry introvert again. Oh my gosh. Yes. But, um, today, these days, kids these days, um, I see lots of headphones mm-hmm. going around campus. Yeah. So, so I get what Treasure's saying, um, in that regard. But at the same time, when I think about things like the way that music can be your sort of white noise or your reset, your recharge, um, you know, it sort of quiets everything else down mm-hmm. so that you can think or you can do whatever you need mm-hmm. to do. Um, like, I totally buy that as a value of personal sound bubbles, sure. to borrow his language there. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I am uh, I'm kind of with you. Like, I, I see what he is. I see exactly what he is getting at. And I, uh, I he, you mentioned the idea of this being, you know, one of many symptoms. Um, and I, I think that there's a larger idea here about, you know, maybe the dissolution of, of community and, and, you know, sort of an individualistic alienation of, of ourselves from what used to be very shared experiences in communal spaces and, and yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. It used to be better. I know it used to be better. angry introvert it used to be better. Yeah, it sure did. Ask mm-hmm. anybody who's, you know, not white, not yeah. male, how much better it used to be. Idiot. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Um, <laughs> My my um my empathy for people who who have any kind of even just on one dimension a used to be better I mean with the possible yeah, exception of the actual ecological environment um my my uh my 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 sympathy for used to be better points of view is rapidly waning the more more history mm-hmm. I know and you know the further right. along we get in in our history um anyhow that being said I do think he's got something there but at the same time there's also a part of me that says yes but what's the alternative um you know should i have to listen to the noise of the bus um should i have to listen to the completely asinine conversations that go on behind me in the morning if i take the 7 a.m bus hello fellow over park commuters going downtown talking about whatever's on the front page of whatever the name of our city paper is i don't even know um no i shouldn't because you guys are idiots and you're just reading to each other really bland statements that somebody else wrote about the news that i'm going to hear through other channels later anyhow um and not expressing an opinion about it i need to hear um Mm -hmm. should i have to listen to moreover the noise of the bus itself which is a Mm -hmm. huge hulking rattling roaring machine you know right it's like what's the alternative mm -hmm. And, and even when we get down to the campus level you know, again, I, I would say, what's the alternative? It's kind of like I said several episodes ago, we talked about, um, I, I made some angry introverty kind of statements about the rights of people who have something to say and people who might listen to them. Um, and the idea of, of, you know, the right to an audience. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, we can, we can also say a lot of things about the culture, like, oh, you know, it's all kittens on the internet now. Nobody's paying attention to important works. <laughs> You know, there's there's people doing this important work, spreading diversity and and good values and whatever. And it's like, well, 
Yeah, but what's the alternative? Everybody's web browser at 3 p.m. gets taken over and they get shown something that's culturally important as decided by, right. you know, who decides? Um, as decided by a committee somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, mm-hmm. this is a problem, but it's saying it's a problem I don't think is an awareness is curative moment. It's it's a you're being obnoxious moment. Like, give people something sure. worth taking their headphones off for and they'll take them off. <laughs> give give like me that. a quiet bus that, nice. that sounds like a nice stream running through a through a mountain pass, and I'll I'll take my earpods off on the bus. The earpods on the bus get taken off. Um, have I, have yeah, I drug us completely yeah. off topic? I'm sorry. No, 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 you haven't at all. Um, uh, 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 I have one tangent and then one response. Okay. Um, one tangent um, that reminds me of I was just listening to an NPR story about. I can't remember what musical group it was and I can't remember what country, but they mentioned um, that in South Africa, um, I believe it's law, um, television stations, and I could be getting this wrong, but it's NPR, so it's very easily searchable and we'll put it in show notes. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think it's television stations and, and radio stations mainly, so media, um, only a certain percentage of their material, mm-hmm. their content can be created from outside South Africa. Mm-hmm. The rest of it, whatever percentage, it might be 30 or 40 or 50, I can't mm-hmm. remember, um, has to be produced by South Africans. This sounds awfully um, French. I mean, I know, I'm, I believe you that it's South Africa, oh, but yeah, I see it's saying. like, that took this, me I was like no, this I sort of like, let's preserve our culture, you know, let's. Yeah, yeah, no, same kind of thing. Um no, and I was thinking about that, that idea. It's like, well, there's one alternative, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, like you're saying, um, well, we'll make it a better bus and you have to not have headphones in for half mm-hmm. of it or, you know, or whatever version of this we're, we're thinking right. of like, oh, you know, half the class period can be free work time and you can put your headphones in mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. Um, but the other half, you have to be engaging with your classmates. Um, yeah. So that's my tangent. Um, my response. So something interesting that I thought of as you were talking was, um, well, what if treasures argument were amended and it were, um, introverts can continue to do what they want to do with their sound bubbles, but people who are less sensitive, um, you have to take your headphones out so that you can become better listeners, <laughs> you know, cause that's his whole thing. Like in response to what you're saying, like his argument is that all this stuff, makes us mm-hmm. worse listeners and that affects our relationships right. um, and our learning and all these other yeah. areas. Um, but I think, you know, sort of what the research and, and things that um, Kane writes about would say in response would be, yeah, but it's probably mostly those stupid extroverts who, <laughs> who don't listen as well because they're less observant. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and listening is a form of observation. Yeah, it could be. Um, it's and that I I will point out uh, point listeners back to last week when we went through the the you know are you an introvert quiz. Um, one of the few times I said no to one of the questions was uh, on the one about being a good listener, <laughs> despite mm-hmm. scoring very high towards the introvert side of the spectrum. I would not say I'm a great listener. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I listen all day long, just you know, not to the people around me. <laughs> Um, stupid bus people. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, I don't know. Um, 
There's something in here, too, that I, I like. One thing I'll give Cain credit for in the latter part of the book, um, where she talks about advice and gets gets more prescriptive. Um, the book celebrates a lot of the things that introverts do well and don't necessarily get credit for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the... Uh, one thing that we've kind of got as a culture, part of the the extrovert ideal that gets mentioned, but I don't think it's a ton of time in this book. Um, you know, we don't just celebrate extroversion as being the ideal for leaders and salespeople and lawyers and you know anybody that we need we we imagine needs to lead or interact with others. We picture introvert or excuse me extroversion as being, you know, the sort of ideal or default way to do that. Um, but there's also this notion in our culture that that is the creative class as well, you know, that the, um, that, that the theater people are the archetypes of the creatives, you know, the people who love to be out in front of others, the people who always love to be interacting, the people who can't Mm -hmm. get enough of other people, that this is where creativity lies. Um, and you know, my, my personal pet theory after reading the book is the reason we've got that in our brains is because it's the extroverted creative people we notice because they are quote unquote creative, you know, what, however that manifests loud, gregarious, covered in tattoos, crazy hair, interesting dress saying outright outlandish things. Um, the extroverted creatives are the creatives we will notice the introverted creatives who are not so concerned with, you know, interacting and putting themselves out there and being seen, Mm -hmm maybe just as or more creative, but they're not the ones we see. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, we, we all have this category that we've erected in our head of, of the extroverted artist. Um, right. Whereas Kane makes the case in the book and, and points to a decent amount of research. Um, I, I don't know that this one's completely robust, but at least suggests by, by a goodly number of examples that a lot of extremely creative people, um, including some extremely famous artists she cites, um, as well as creative scientists like Einstein, uh, were actually tremendously introverted. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something she talks about. You know, she mentions it throughout, and then tries to address it um, more thoroughly at the end in one of those later chapters. Um, well, she mentions at one point that she wouldn't have been able to get this book published if she had not been able to convince the publishers that she could do enough self-promotion mm-hmm. to to meet their expectations, right. um, that she could do a book tour, that she could give an interview, mm-hmm. um, all these different things. Um, and it's easy to brush aside a statement like that, but if you think about it, um, you know, what works have not made it to the popular attention because their creators could not do that just because mm-hmm. of a, you know, for sure. or, you know, a, <laughs> I was gonna say a pre-existing condition. But, you know <laughs> I mean. It's, it really is a burden. Um, I couldn't get insured and I couldn't get a book deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, even, even setting aside, like, can you, can you go do a book tour and do a, do speaking engagements? I mean, there's even an element of that where, you hear stories about authors who got published, and they talk about all the rejections they got. Um, well, first of all, if you're if you're a sensitive person, you know by either either the sort of classical crazily definition or a more specific psychological, you know, react strongly to stimuli definition, your threshold for how many rejections you can take before you give up might be very different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talked about introverts being good at persisting, uh, at least per this book, and I think that might be true. But at the same time, I could see that being a hurdle. And moreover, mm-hmm. some of the some of the things that people do, like 
you know, talking to a lot of people in publishing, um, right. phoning up agents, phoning up publishers, making a nuisance of themselves. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, that's, you know, that's what sales is a lot of the time. Um, just ask, you know, anybody who's been sold anything by someone online recently, whether they would categorize the person selling as a nuisance or not, um, let alone on the phone. Uh, but making making a social nuisance of yourself is often how you get stuff like that done. It's how mm-hmm. you get noticed. It's how you get picked up. It's, you know, mm-hmm. you get your name out there by putting it out there and you get deals done by having conversations very often. I wouldn't say all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. So in these stories, these narratives are so common. Um, you know, we, we've heard about people who couldn't persist in that way and have just given mm-hmm. up. So it's easy to understand why so many of these qualities that are related to introversion um, get thought of as weaknesses or shortcomings. Um, so I, too, thought that was a big <laughs> part of the big deal of this book was that there are so many qualities related to introversion that ought to be reframed as strengths. Um, things like observation, mm-hmm. um, and along with that listening, mm-hmm. um, introspection, right. um, which is hard to capture if that person is not willing or able to, um, you know, share in the yeah. same ways an extroverted worker or creator might be. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, Mm-hmm. Can I before um I before we get too far away from creativity I just I I realized I said a lot about it without citing too many specific examples of of the kind of research angle um sure. one thing I'd like to throw out there just because it it is one of the the sort of business world bombs um I think I think mostly from later in the book I don't recall exactly where this falls but I, I certainly like this because this is one that I would have gotten wrong on you know an advanced quiz about what <laughs> I know about the research um. So I, I mentioned the idea that the book puts forward, which is a lot of a lot of creativity lies in introverts, possibly, you know, in some cases more so than extroverts. And one of the ways, one of the cases that Kane makes for that is the research on brainstorming, which yes, I found yes. really interesting. I would one hundred percent have fallen on the wrong wrong side of this. Um Oh, I would have thought it'd be one of your things, like <laughs> you know, on the list of things you like to rail yeah. against. Yeah. Oh. I thought you knew that. Oh one. no, okay. no, no! I mean, I, I, I have you know for the last few years, but sure, you know, oh, like, I see like yeah. six, seven years ago, like pre, pre Susan Kane, pre Quiet. Would I, mm-hmm. would I have guessed correctly? I might, I might have read a turns out study at some point and been like, you know, actually. Uh, but here's, yeah. here's no, yeah, do go. Here's the this, thing, yeah. and I don't, I'm, I'm not going to try to read from the book because I'll take too long to find it <laughs> probably miss the <laughs> best part anyways so i'll just summarize and point listeners towards the book and you know go go do your own homework i'll find a couple links for show notes on this too outside of the book mm-hmm. but uh the long and the short of it is um group brainstorming is what a lot of us think of as a tremendously powerful way to generate a lot of ideas we think of it as being quote unquote creative we think if you need to have a creative idea the best way to do it is get a group of people in a room with a whiteboard and have them shout out ideas and not judge each other's ideas and pile up ideas and build off of each other's ideas and that new things will be sparked and we'll have these great synergies and boom, more ideas, better ideas. Um, The research, though, is actually pretty damning on this. Uh, What turns out to happen is people don't come up with more ideas in group brainstorming than they do individually. And the quality mm-hmm. of their ideas is not better. 
um, typically what happens is people will do better on their own uh, for many reasons. One of them, you know, no matter how well you've built your norm of brainstorming is not about judgment and assessment, you know, brainstorming is just about ideas, people will still worry about being judged, about looking stupid, and they'll hang back. Um, people, some people in the group will tend to sit back and do less work than they would on their own. You know, if it's up to you to come up mm-hmm. with 12 ideas and you got to go work on it, you'll probably come up with 12 ideas. Right. If you're in a group of 15 people, you don't need to come up with 12 ideas. You know, right. We get social loafing. If you, yeah. Social loafing. That's the term. I couldn't think of it. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, you know, for, I just think it's funny. You bake a loaf. <laughs> <laughs> for all kinds of reasons though, people don't tend to. Uh, do as well in group brainstorming. The one, the one, you know, place you said if you want to have a big group brainstorm session and discuss things, um, Kane makes a recommendation here that you you let people have them go off and germinate ideas on their own first, and then bring them all together and pool them. Um, that mm-hmm. is a way that you get better, more and better ideas out of a group, as you have the group work individually and then add it up. Mm-hmm. Or um, she mentions online mm-hmm. spaces too. Yes, yeah, that's a which is yeah, a, yeah. a good a good uh, macro example of where this kind of process works tremendously well. She cites is open source software, um, mm-hmm. which uh, listeners, if you're hearing this on an Android phone right now, um, Android is a descendant of Linux, which is a massive open source project that's been going on for decades now. Um, you know, people working collaboratively online, um, sparking tremendously, tremendous creativity and working in a huge group, but doing so largely <laughs> from behind computer screens individually. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, sort of sounds like a prototype introvert. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. And that's something that else, another theme that I seem to remember from the book, I did not actually see as much of going through it this time as I remember there being, hmm. is the idea of the internet as, as sort of a leveler for introversion and extroversion, as a place where introverts can go be extroverted to the same degree hmm. extroverts are. Um, because I, I mean, I've certainly found that, and I, I know I've seen this talked about very extensively elsewhere, although now I'm not sure where, because I thought it was mostly from this book. Um, but mm-hmm. the idea that, you know, online, everybody's an extrovert. Who wants to be, hmm. anyways? Mm-hmm. Then you do not face the same level of, of uh, energy drain and, and um, anxiety and anything else that you might have as a sensitive person dealing right. with people through the computer rather than face-to-face real-time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she does bring it up, mm-hmm. um, saying that introverts are much more likely to um, talk about themselves online, yeah. for instance. Yeah, it's there. It's um, there. That's but, somewhere. I can't remember. Yeah, I was yeah. remembering it being a huge theme at some point, though, and it just there isn't hmm. that much of it. Yeah. Yeah. But anyhow, cre- for, for the creativity argument, for people who chafed when I said earlier, you know, introverts are, are <laughs> I won't say the creative ones, but they're kind of the creative one. No, just kidding. Um, uh, but <laughs> they're certainly the underreported. underreported creative ones. And one of the ways that introverts are underreportedly creative is a lot of creativity <laughs> happens individually in quiet settings, not in a mm-hmm. big group shouting out ideas to be written on a whiteboard. Um, mm-hmm. Which, by the way, Kane Kane says something that I think is important too. I've led a lot of brainstorming sessions, and I do think they have some value, but a lot of the value is in building social cohesion. Um, and I would say too, mm-hmm. I I think it might help as well in getting buy in for whatever idea you're going to settle on. You know, if everyone feels they participated in creating it, rather than mm-hmm. finding out that their twelve ideas got rejected and somebody else's idea got picked. You know, 
I, I think there's yeah. some value there. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. When I am thinking of in my classrooms, um, sometimes I'll use stuff that might f- seem like brainstorming or um, writing to some basic prompts. Um, even when I use anything that looks like that, though, it's usually just as a way into a topic. Mm-hmm. And then I'm asking people to go off on their own and do other activities right. and do other things to look for topics, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, yeah, no, so I'm yeah. down with all that. Yeah, sure. as, as one other um, creative idea, um, I think, is it Kafka that she references with this one? I think it might be. Um, mm-hmm. uh, another tremendously creative act worth talking about is writing. I've mentioned this one before. Anyone who thinks that creativity is, is an extroverted pursuit, um, I, would, I would challenge them to think about creative writing and think about how much better that they write and how much more they write if 12 people are looking over their shoulder at what they're writing while they're doing it or if they're trying to talk about it as they're typing the words. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of creative pursuits are best or only pursued, at least at least initially, individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was Kafka talking about... Um he didn't want the fiance around when he was working, mm. like didn't even want yeah, another person yeah, I, in I the room. I could not write at all yeah. in that case or words to that. Right. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Which gets back to, I'm thinking of the question on the quiz about um, whether or not you like to show people work before you feel that it's done. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, do you have other, other sort of content takeaways or do you want to talk a little bit about the book as a book? Mm-hmm. Um, we can bridge to whatever. Yeah. Do you we can certainly take we can come back around to practical takeaways if we want to, you mm-hmm. know, be, be the no, podcast about advice, which really isn't, isn't our style. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> this is the chapter four that the listeners and their review are going to say we should have just cut yeah. out. <laughs> See what I did yeah. there? <laughs> yeah. I'm meta. Um, I, I have, I have I actually kind of a lot of my notes into something about the book as a book. Um, oh, my. Which I, I guess it shouldn't surprise me because I know we've talked about this before, but I, I, yeah, I was kind of surprised. I figured I'd have more content notes and less of this. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that I noted, um, we mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, for anybody interested in, in reading along, that the book is on Audible. I was, I, I don't know if you have this, I have this thing, and I know some authors are awful at this, but I have this thing where I really don't like books that are read by other people. Um, when the author is a living person with a voice. Um, and hmm. I was a little bit put off that Susan Cain did not read her own book. I suppose it is in keeping with her brand um, that she didn't read it, but I was disappointed that the book was read by somebody else. Um, it particularly as I thought she did a pretty good job in her TED talk, um, which I'll link to in show notes. Um, mm-hmm. and she points out throughout that she can speak in front of people. So certainly she could have spoken to a microphone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I guess I would have to hear her to weigh in in particular. Yeah. I will say that I've listened to, um, I've tried to listen to audio books and I've also listened to, to podcasts and things with, um, uh, people whose voices impeded mm-hmm. the meaning. For yeah, me. no, yeah, I, I know, I know I there are cases. Could not get into yeah, it. No, there are mm-hmm. cases of that. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think I have mm-hmm. as big a problem with it with fiction, but I have, I found, I found that over and over again with nonfiction books. I just, I don't like when they're not read huh. by the author. 
Yeah, you want to yeah. hear them. And, and there are a lot of cases where I don't know the author from, you know, anybody else. Like, I would never know in a million years if, if they didn't say at the beginning, read by John Stevens. You sure. Know, anyhow. Um, but that leads into another another sort of complaint I have about the book that I think we've talked about before. Uh, in the introduction, one of the first stories of the many great stories that Susan Cain tells is of her no. first client. No. <laughs> I thought of this earlier, and I was like, I wonder if we're going to bring that Should up. Should I not bring I'm it up? Gonna... No, 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 that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, she, I think we need not dwell. She, she but... tells a story about her first client, um, who is a, a Wall Street attorney named Laura, who is an introvert, and uh, uh-huh. she, she tells a very charming story about a negotiation, a very tense negotiation, very confrontational negotiation, um, in which Laura initially thinks to herself as it progresses, like, I, I can't do this. Like, tomorrow I'm looking for a new job. I can't do this. Um, a new career. A new career, yeah. yes. But Need in this. the course of it, Laura recalls Susan Cain's advice about what her own strengths are as an introvert. And she does some very interesting things. First of all, she listens better than anybody in the room. Uh, second of all, because she's you know somewhat studious and, and good at details, she's prepared better than anybody in the room. Um, third, she, she, at one point, uh, fairly early, you know, somebody says something, uh, confrontational, you know, about how, oh, you know, you, your client would be lucky to accept the terms of this deal. You know, they're in a terrible position. And, and she doesn't know what to say. So she just sits there and says nothing for an uncomfortably long time. And it ends up kind of shifting the energy in the room. It's almost like a power move. Um, you know, at another point, somebody, uh, throws a tantrum and storms out of the room and she ignores it because she doesn't know what else to do. She's not good at conflict. She's an introvert. Mm-hmm. Um, but later gets told like that, that actually completely diffused the situation and took all of the, all of the wind out of the sails of the person who threw the tantrum. Cause you know, the tantrum went unacknowledged, which is mm-hmm. you know, what you do with a two year old throwing a tantrum very often. Right. Um, Anyhow, in the course of the story, we find out that this this negotiation actually went really well, and that everybody was super impressed. You know, she she uh, her her firm got taken on by the clients that she was representing, saying like, "We want you to do everything for us." The opposing uh, law firm actually wanted to hire her on because they had never seen anything like it. You know, it was a tremendous success. Right. Um, the 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 trick is the turns out the gotcha at the end though is that Laura is actually Susan Kane. <gasps> what that whole time <laughs> it wasn't Laura. I, I meant to find another example of a book that does this because I know I've seen it before and I Gladwell I, Gladwell. Oh. He says, "Oh wait, no, just kidding. That was my father." There we go. Perfect. Thank you. Or grandfather. Thank you. I knew. I, I knew. I knew. I knew. I knew. Mm-hmm. I knew a good, like, well-known example. I've seen other self-helpy right. examples too, um, and it's. I mean, it's. I think it's a trope, probably even in fiction. You know, movies and TV shows with somebody telling a story about you know oh, this little boy that da da da. Oh, that was actually me. <laughs> gotcha. Right. You know, I was the narrator. Yeah. Look at me. Yeah. I. Oh, I can't stand that. And I, it's not, it's not that I don't trust anything that follows. Um, although she does something else in here that, that I do have a problem with in some books. Um, hers, I think I'm going to give a pass on, but, um, (laughs) a related thing, but yeah, it, it bothered me. It bothered me very much the first time I read it. It bothered me again this time. It's like, Mm -hmm. don't do that. Just tell us the story. Right. Well, um, one example I fall back to a lot is, uh, the sitcom, how I met your mother. Mm -hmm. 
it's full of these moments where the, the, as an audience member, not only are you not privy to certain pieces of information, but they set it up in a way that it's almost like it's a mystery to solve, but you never have information to mm-hmm. solve it. So like, it's always a gotcha. Right. Un- that you couldn't have done anything with. There's nothing to do with it as an audience right. member. Right, an unearned surprise. So it's not interesting. Yeah. yeah. I hate that. Um, <laughs> the, yeah, there's a related thing she does too that I, I I have a bigger problem with actual straight out, you know, self-help advice kind of books that do this. She also mentions in the introduction that she composites some characters together. Um, oh, you know, right. And obviously she changes names and details and that's, that's you know, necessary because not everybody is willing to have their personal details shared in this book, nor did everyone even know that they were going to be talked about in the book. So I understand. Um, I do, I will say I have a big, big problem when self-help books, you know, use composites or change details of the characters that are being portrayed um, that -hmm. are supposedly real people. Because if you change the circumstances of someone's, say, employment to disguise their identity, you also change the likelihood that, you know, somebody's going to be able to see themselves in the story and actually have the same thing work. Um, similarly right. with compositing, you know, unless you are a, you know, research psychologist and you are compositing people from a huge longitudinal study with tens of thousands in it, you're probably not qualified to composite the character and still have your results be applicable. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, unless, unless your book is about how your one piece of advice solves any problem, in which case you're fine. Um, you're probably also wrong, but you know, it'll be just as accurate for your composite as it was for the real people. Mm -hmm. Um, again, though, this Um, isn't really an advice book per se, so I'm kind of okay with that. Right. Um, also this is another complete tangent, but also interesting, hopefully. Um, if not listeners, just humor me and hang out for a minute. (laughs) Um, so the gal who has played Maria on Sesame street for 40 Mm -hmm. years is retiring. Is her name Maria by Um, the way? No, is it Sonia? I don't. I have no idea. I, I, I never thought to look into this. Um. Well, she was also recently on NPR. <laughs> Naturally. Um. I will find it. Um. But she, in her interview about, she's also got a new memoir out. Um. She mentions how you know she was young when Sesame Street started and when she figured out what Sesame Street was and what it was all going to be about and what they were going to be doing, um, she said everyone was just so excited. They were going to, and this is pretty a pretty close paraphrase, they were going to get out there, they were going to solve racism, they were going to work on this, <laughs> um, blah, 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 about all these big ambitions mm-hmm. that the show had um, for its audiences. And I was like, oh, just like us, right? Uh-huh. Check, <laughs> check. They solved racism? Um yeah. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Indeed. Gonna fix it all with this one book, this one podcast. <laughs> um, I do love Sesame Street. That's not a critique. I just thought it was yeah, cute. No, she's I, like, I, yeah, I, in the good old days when we started. Grand ambitions. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I do like that because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of advice books over the last several years have kind of taken the opposite. You know, like, start small. Your business should be just a hobby, and then you can build it up, and... You know, mm. it's it's nice to hear a story about somebody who actually is like, yeah, we're going to change the world. And, you know, no, they didn't solve racism per se, but I think they've but had an impact. Awesome. Oh, yeah. No, that whole educational model has been shown to be so powerful. Yeah, I still know the words to me um, and my llama. 
I mean, there you go, right there. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. Well, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So thinking about book as book, um, you mentioned last time about how this book in particular for this topic has become a sort of touchstone. Um, yeah, I just find it hugely powerful. It's probably the book I've most recommended um, mm-hmm. in my adult life already, and it's, you know, two, three years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Out of the gate. It, it's um, it, it's also funny. It's just occurred to me that, I, you know, I'm sure there's others out there, especially since this one was a New York Times bestseller. Um, but even for being somebody who is, is, you know, post Susan Cain, so sensitive to the issues of introversion and extroversion and, and how our culture and work is set up to deal with them. Um, I am not off the top of my head thinking of the titles of any other works on the subject that have come out recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not completely ignorant of books. I mean, I read a lot. I, I'm <laughs> running at a rate of about 20 nonfiction books a year right now, so... Um, and that's, that's, you know, what I actually read, let alone what I hear about, you know, or mm-hmm. put in my Amazon wish list, and I can't really think of any others. <laughs> sure, sure. So it's, it is the um, cultural touchstone on these topics. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, still. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, in some ways, reading it again, I, I, I do recommend it. Listeners, I recommend it. If you haven't picked it up in, in preparation for these episodes, I do whether you think you're introverted or not, like even if you're an extrovert, I think this will help you understand your quiet, you know, and, and she points this out in the book. This is good to be, this is going to be good to understand your, your quieter spouse or child or parent or friend or whatever, um, you know, mm-hmm. employee. Uh, I do recommend it. I will say like I, the book, the book as it was in my memory, I think I like slightly better though, because it was so much cleaner. <laughs> Um, And, you know, that's, that's, and in some ways that's to her credit, because, I mean, this is a complex topic. Um, This is people, psychology, it's not, it's not simple. Um, It's not as simple as we've made it out in this podcast. It's not, definitely not as simple as what I've been carrying around in my head from the book for the last two years. But, (laughs) you know, it's, it's definitely, um, I, I, there's, there's more here though than what I've been recommending it for, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I've been recommending sure. it because I wanted people to understand the, the high reactivity and the sensitivity issues, um, and to understand mm-hmm. introversion. And that's kind of my, my biggest takeaway takeaway has been, um, and I don't think an unhealthy way to understand the message of the book is that introversion and extroversion are not about people. Um, I mean, they're about people. I mean, we're not talking about like rocks being introverted, but, um, the, it's the, the two temperaments are not about one's attraction or re- repulsion from people. Um, it's, it's oh, not okay. about, I really was not following you there. It's not about like, whether you uh... like people or don't like people. It's not even about whether you right. like to be around people or don't like to be around people. Um, it's not even about being good at that stuff either. As she points out, Barbara Streisand is, you know, very sensitive, has, is, is extroverted, but has these same sensitivity, you know, and reactivity issues. Um, mm-hmm. has, has stage fright and shyness. Um, the, the, the takeaway I had, which is an oversimplification is that introversion and extroversion are about stimulation. Um, mm-hmm. and that the reason that we tend to think of it and it tends to manifest as, uh, how one deals with people is a, because we're social creatures, you know, we live, we live in a society to quote George Costanza. Um, and so we tend to, to, 
you know, parse it that way, but also because people are very stimulating. Um, and if you are keyed to um, have a higher threshold for how much stimulation you need to feel alive and awake, uh, and you have a higher threshold for how much is too much and you, you, you know, start to shut down, you're probably going to be able to deal with and want to deal with more people in your day than if you have a lower mm -hmm. threshold for how much you need to feel alive and awake and how much is too much and you want to shut down. Okay. Um, and, and just understanding that that's what it's about. It's about neurological sensitivity. It's about how much do you want to take in before you say, okay, that's good, I got it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not going to be a perfect model for everybody, but I don't know that, that explains a mm -hmm. lot more of my experience of the world than just, I like people or I don't. Right. Right. Um, PS, I don't. Oh, and you. <laughs> um, yeah. So for everyone except Max, it is not about how you feel about people. <laughs> um, you can like people and be introverted. They are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. You can hate people and be um, extroverted. Yes, Max. <laughs> you keep hyping hating people. <laughs> and not wanting to be around them. Hitler was an extrovert. Come on. Oh, my God. <laughs> Angry and alone. <laughs> my preferred qualities. My preferences. Um, <laughs> how do you take your introvert? Angry and alone. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> These things can happen in many combinations. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, no, thinking about takeaways, what I think is super exciting and, uh, one of the reasons I'm super jazzed to teach with this text, um, late this semester is that I think different people will take away what is the best light bulb for them. Mm -hmm. You know, what, you know, for us, uh, the sensitivity stuff, the reactivity stuff, um, getting away from the idea of. <laughs> how you feel about people and being around them um, as the key to these definitions. You know, those are things that we both picked up on pretty strongly. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm very interested to see what people's experiences make them pick up out of this text. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because even um, like things do keep coming back to me, um, you know, thinking back to the way that this book has changed my classroom practices and the way that um, I think about and sort of explain to myself why my students are the way they are or why my colleagues are the way they are. Um, this work has helped, um, uh, maybe not correct, but it's helped adjust some of those inner monologues that I have, mm -hmm. you know, the stories we tell ourselves about what the world is and how it works. Right. Um, Stuff in here has helped me um, fix some of that, you know, um, moments where I feel like in the past I've done everything that I can to get a discussion going in a class, for instance, um, only to find out later that when I add a step to that conversation, like, for instance, letting my students do some free writing before we start talking, um, suddenly people who just needed a minute to think have been given that chance mm -hmm. and now they're ready to jump into conversation on the spot yeah. um, because it's not really on the spot anymore. They've been given an opportunity to think differently, sure. um, not on, on the spot out loud. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's that, that is a huge thing. Um, 
thinking about, think about personal takeaways, like practical things to do as well. I mean, my big practical thing to tell people to do would be go read the book. Because <laughs> you'll, you'll find something, probably something different than I did. Sure. Sure. Are we ready to get quiet? I think we did. You have been listening to Priority. Once again, for complete show notes, or if you'd like to send us feedback via email or subscribe to the show, visit us on the web at priority.fm. If you enjoyed the program today, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive rating and review, as that will help new listeners find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting updates or communicating with us via tweets, follow us on Twitter, where we are at PriorityFM. That's at P-R-I-O-R-I-T-Y-F-M. Thanks again for listening. There you go again. <laughs> Get stuck in my head. Uh, any did yeah. we did I did I cut you off? Did we gloss over anything you wanted to? Yeah, I think you can cut somewhere there. Um, yeah, ambivert life, yo. <laughs> <laughs> I've said it twice. It's a thing. You know, um, I I think I finally landed on what it is that bothers me most about the term ambivert. Oh my god, stop denying my existence. It sounds like the name of a drug. Oh. But it sounds like a drug that makes you happy. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> Do you find sometimes you have trouble fitting in with introverts or extroverts? Are oh you unsure god. whether you want to hang back, dive in, or do both at the same time? You might want to talk to your doctor about ambivert. Find out if ambivert is right for you. Q woman strolling through a field. <laughs> yep. Okay, good time. I sound like a drug. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, I don't know where the end's going to be, but I'm going to let you work your editing. Magic. Yeah, I'm sure I'll find something to do. <laughs> I usually do. That makes it sound like you're bored. Uh, I'm not. I'm not bored. I'm just. It's, I'm Are you busy. bored? <laughs> Try ambivert. Do you experience boredom, lethargy, lack of interest in other people or yourself? Talk to your doctor and find out if ambivert is right for you. <laughs>